On August 1, 1962, Marilyn Monroe would sign the biggest contract of her career for $250,000 to complete the film Something's Got to Give. Sadly, four days later, the actress would be found dead. On August 5, 1962, just shortly after midnight, the lifeless body of Marilyn was discovered by her housekeeper. She was found nude, lying face down, with one hand clutching her phone and pills scattered across the bedroom floor. It was less than three months after her famous sultry performance of Happy Birthday at President John F. Kennedy's 45th birthday on the 19th of May, 1962, an autopsy would later reveal a fatal amount of sedatives in Marilyn's system, and her death was ruled probable suicide. However, over the years, many have speculated the deadly cocktail was possibly administered by someone else, and she may have been murdered. Join us on a supernatural journey as we tour the tragic life and death of Marilyn Monroe. We examine the mystical facts, explore the conspiracy theories, and investigate the tragic demise of one of Hollywood's most glamorous superstars. This is Death by Misadventure. On June 1, 1926, Norma Jean Mortensen was born to a single mom named Gladys Baker, who worked as a film cutter in the movie industry. Life had not been particularly kind to Gladys. She had had two other children, Bernice and Hermit, by her first marriage to Jack Baker. But he had taken the children away from her and moved to Kentucky prior to her second marriage to Edward Mortensen. Supposedly, Baker had left a note for Gladys that read, I've taken the children and you will never see them again. The absence of her first two children caused Gladys great pain, along with the failure of her second marriage to Edward and her inability to care for Norma Jean only added to her heartache and stress. Sadly, Gladys was mentally and financially unprepared to be a single parent, and soon after her daughter's birth, she was placed with foster parents Albert and Ida Bolander in Hawthorne, California. Growing up, Norma Jean's childhood was far from idyllic, and her family had a history of mental instability. Both of her grandparents, Otis and Delilah Monroe, finished out their lives in mental institutions, and her uncle Marion suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Norma Jean's foster parents tried to provide her a stable home, but were extremely religious. She had to promise never to drink or swear and attended church several times a week. The young girl who dreamed of future stardom would quickly learn she had to hide it from the Bullenders if she wanted to sing, dance, or act out her Hollywood dreams. Each Saturday, Gladys would take the trolley to Hawthorne to visit Norma Jean, and she would call her the lady with red hair rather than her mother. Later, her grandmother would make sure she was baptized as Norma Jean Baker. Her mother chose the last name Baker because it was Gladys's first husband's surname. By 1933, her mother Gladys was able to save enough money to buy a little house and took Norma Jean home when she was just seven. They lived in a white bungalow close to Hollywood Bowl, and the little girl's life finally appeared to be happy. 
Sadly, only two years later, Gladys would suffer a nervous breakdown and be diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, which at the time was a common misdiagnosis for manic depression, and she was sent to live in a state mental hospital. Norma Jean was then taken in by Gladys' best friend, Grace Goddard, who, after a series of foster homes, placed her into the care of Los Angeles Orphans Home in 1935. Norma Jean was traumatized by her experience and felt like no one seemed to want her and developed a stutter due to the emotional upheaval and abuse. Grace Goddard eventually took Norma Jean back to live with her in 1937, although this stay did not last long as Grace's husband was accused of molesting her. Afterwards, she went to live with Grace's Aunt Anna, but due to her advanced age, she could not care properly for the young girl either. Although, during this turbulent time, several people showed interest in adopting Norma Jean, but her mother Gladys refused to sign the papers. Norma Jean, one last time, would return to live with the Goddards. They had planned to relocate, and according to the new law, the couple could not take her with them. At the age of 16, Norma Jean only had two choices, return to the orphanage or get married. In June of 1942, Norma Jean would marry her next-door neighbor, Jimmy Doherty, just 18 days after she celebrated her 16th birthday. Her new husband would later state in an interview they decided to get married to prevent her from going back to a foster home. But they were also in love. Jimmy and Norma Jean would settle into a four-room house and appeared to be very happy. On sunny afternoons, they would often drive down to Santa Monica Beach and dine on cold hot dogs and potato salad together. The first two years of the couple's marriage were blissful, and Jimmy would later state in an interview he felt like the luckiest man in the world. But that world all changed in 1943, when Jimmy enlisted in the Merchant Marines, and was shipped off to the Pacific where he would be stationed for the next two years. Norma Jean moved in with his parents and would dutifully write her husband letters several times a week, but soon she became bored without him. Marilyn needed to support herself and got a job working in a munitions factory in Burbank. She was spotted by photographer David Conover, who saw her potential, and he featured her in a high-profile article he was doing about women working for the war effort. It was a stepping stone for Norma Jean, who would soon begin appearing as a pinup girl for popular magazines by early 1946. She had big dreams and was determined to become a movie star. Norma Jean began taking acting lessons and soon caught the attention of 20th Century Fox. She wanted to sign a contract with the studio, but they said she couldn't be married. So while Jimmy was still stationed overseas in 1946, she filed for divorce. He quickly returned home and tried to talk her out of the split, but she wouldn't budge and they went their separate ways. It would be a pivotal year for Norma Jean. She divorced her young husband and changed her name to the more glamorous Marilyn Monroe. The next step in her transformation was to dye her hair platinum blonde. 
and the sexy bombshell was born. Marilyn took drama lessons at the Actors Lab and was determined to become a serious actress. In 1950, she landed a part in John Huston's Asphalt Jungle, then a role in All About Eve. However, many of her acting roles came at a steep emotional price, and she tried to help other female performers make it in Hollywood. In the 1950s, American jazz singer Ella Fitzgerald was barred from performing at Los Angeles nightclubs because segregation laws were still in force. Marilyn went out of her way to land Ella a gig. She convinced the management to let Ella play by promising to sit in the front row for a week. During Marilyn's continued rise to stardom, she became the protege of Johnny Hyde, who was the vice president of the William Morris Agency. He represented Marilyn, and they soon became involved in a passionate love affair, with Hyde even proposing marriage. He paid for plastic surgery to fix her nose and jaw, and arranged for a bit part in the Marx Brothers film Love Happy in 1950. By 1953, Monroe was one of the most marketable Hollywood stars. She had leading roles in the film Niagara, which focused on her sex appeal, and the comedies Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and How to Marry a Millionaire, which established her star image as a dumb blonde. That same year, Hugh Hefner launched Playboy magazine and decided to use a color nude of Marilyn Monroe and called her Sweetheart of the Month. The young orphan girl was now an iconic figure of Hollywood glamour and fashion. But soon, she would find the trappings of fame difficult to deal with. Marilyn, now at the height of her fame, was ready to settle down and was tired of being treated as a sex object. Like other young Hollywood starlets, she was the victim of the casting couch and told friends of how she had been held down once at a party and was sexually attacked. Orson Welles recalled one party where Marilyn was surrounded by men and one reached out and tore off her top, revealing her breasts. Marilyn, Wells said, laughed with the others at this indignity. Laughter hit her fury. In early 1952, Marilyn would meet what she thought was her knight in shining armor, Joe DiMaggio. She was only 25 and he was 37. DiMaggio, recently retired from baseball, had expressed a desire to meet the beautiful starlet. By February, the romance was in full bloom. The couple had an immediate attraction— Marilyn, born under the zodiac sign of Gemini, was playful and flirty, but incredibly smart. She told friends she was surprised how crazy she was about Joe. She had expected a flashy New York sports type, and instead she found DiMaggio a Sagittarius, an intriguing man who didn't make a pass at her right away. He treated her with respect, and she loved it. On January 14, 1955, Joe and Marilyn were married in a whirlwind ceremony. The wedding captured the headlines worldwide. However, the honeymoon period would be short-lived. Joe was an extremely jealous type of guy and resented Marilyn's sex symbol status. He wanted a housewife, not a Hollywood starlet, and the marriage was in trouble from the beginning. 
he immediately laid down some ground rules for his wife. DiMaggio had to approve of all her future films. Marilyn was never to be seen semi-dressed, and he wanted her to break out of her dumb blonde typecasting, a point she agreed with. But she wasn't to outshine him either, and when Marilyn did, he would sleep in another bedroom and go days without speaking to her. On May 29, 1955, Marilyn began filming There's No Business Like Show Business. Throughout the summer, she was ill with bronchitis and anemia. For the first time, she began showing serious side effects of the many sleeping pills she had been taking for the last few years. She was often groggy, lethargic, and crying on the set. marriage to Joe soon took a violent turn, and she began to feel suffocated in her relationship. In Marilyn's memoir, she wrote that she and Joe had known it wouldn't be an easy marriage, but that she had no idea of the abuse to come. To put emotional distance between her and Joe, Marilyn began an affair with her voice coach, Schaefer, and when her husband found out, He called Schaefer and told him to come over. But Marilyn told her lover to stay away because she feared Joe would have killed him. Just nine months after they married, Marilyn could take it no more. In October 1954, she filed for divorce from Joe DiMaggio, citing only mental cruelty. However, like most karmic relationships, even after the divorce, Marilyn continued to see Joe, but on her terms. Aside from her vocal coach, She was also dating Marlon Brando and had begun a torrid affair with the married playwright, Arthur Miller. Marilyn had met Arthur previously on the set of the 1951 movie, As Young As You Feel. At the time, Marilyn was heartbroken over the recent death of her agent and former lover, Johnny Hyde. The two had an instant connection. Arthur, a charming Libra, complimented Marilyn's desire to be seen as a serious actress. She wrote about their encounter in her diary. Met a man tonight. It was bam. It was like running into a tree. You know, like a cool drink when you've had a fever. However, the two would not consummate their relationship until after her divorce from Joe DiMaggio in 1955. In 1956, Arthur Miller would establish residence in Reno, Nevada, long enough to be granted a divorce from his wife. Not long after, in a no-frill civil ceremony, Marilyn and Arthur got hitched. The press called the new married couple the Hourglass and the Egghead, and one magazine dubbed their union the most unlikely marriage since the Owl and the Pussycat. What most people fail to see is that Arthur saw Marilyn's artistic potential and noticed a brokenness about her that most men found convenient to ignore. In the HBO documentary on his life, an elderly Arthur Mirror recalls something he said to Marilyn many years before their marriage. He said, You're the saddest girl I've ever met. A smile touched her lips as she discovered the compliment he had intended. You're the only one who's ever said that to me, she told him. The one man who saw into her heart and soul. 
After they married, Marilyn converted to Judaism to express her loyalty and get close to both Arthur and his parents. She once told close friend Susan Strasberg, I can identify with the Jews. Everybody's always out to get them, no matter what they do, just like me. Away from the prying eyes of Hollywood, Marilyn settled in as a housewife with Arthur, and she loved it. She began cooking, keeping house, and giving her new husband more attention and affection than he had been used to in his previous marriage. His children, aged 12 and 9, adored Marilyn, and she got along well with his parents. Sadly, the couple would endure several hardships over the next five years, which included Arthur Miller's investigation for communist sympathies and Marilyn's crippling depression, miscarriages, and drug use. However, the strain of fame and fortune caught up with the couple when Arthur Miller began working on writing the screenplay for The Misfits in 1960, starring Marilyn. It was during the filming that the couple's relationship took a downward spiral, and Arthur would later state that the filming was one of the lowest points in his life. Marilyn, on the other hand, was devastated to helplessly watch as her husband fall in love with photographer Inga Morath. Shortly after the film wrapped, Marilyn and Arthur announced their divorce on November 11, 1960. A few months later, Marilyn, emotionally exhausted by the end of her marriage, was committed by her psychoanalyst, Dr. Marion Chris, to the Payne Whitney Psychiatric Clinic in New York. Marilyn thought she was going in for a rest cure. Instead, she was escorted to a padded cell. The four days she spent in the psych ward proved to be among the most distressing of her life. She immediately reached out to her friends for help, and Joe DiMaggio, who never stopped loving Marilyn, was the only one to answer her call. Joe came as soon as she phoned and demanded to see Marilyn. The head nurse told him only her doctor could do anything, but Joe was insistent, and he was quoted as saying, I'll give you five minutes to get her out here, or I'll tear this fucking place apart brick by brick. Marilyn was promptly released to his care. He then took her to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, where she introduced him as my hero. She would later be released and returned home to Los Angeles under Joe's watchful eye. In 1961, Marilyn would purchase a home in the posh section of Brentwood in Los Angeles. At the urging of her psychoanalyst, Dr. Greenson, she hired Eunice Murray as a housekeeper. Murray, calling herself a nurse who had neither the training or credentials. Many friends suspected that she was a spy for Dr. Greenson, who continued to have more and more control over Marilyn's life, seeing her almost daily when she was in Los Angeles. It was now one year later after the end of her marriage to Arthur Miller, and Marilyn had become restless. Although Joe DiMaggio was desperate to win her back, Marilyn wasn't ready to remarry again and had become close friends with actor Peter Lawford and his wife, the president's sister, Pat Kennedy Lawford. 
The couple's Mediterranean-style mansion, built and originally owned by the MGM co-founder, was a renowned party house, often hosting sex parties where Jack Kennedy would rendezvous with various actresses. She met both Kennedy brothers through the Lawfords, and the president arranged a weekend with her in Palm Springs in March 1962. Peter Lawford escorted Marilyn disguised in a black wig and dowdy clothes to Bing Crosby's guest home where the president was staying. Around the same time, she had also begun an affair with the president's brother Bobby. Soon, this love triangle would prove to be a deadly encounter for the actress. Actor Warren Beatty would be one of the last few people to see Marilyn alive. He met her for the first time at Peter Lawford's house in Santa Monica at a party the night before she died. The young actor had been invited over for a night of tacos and poker, and Marilyn just happened to be there. Later, the two new friends would take a stroll along the beach, and Beatty would later remark in an interview how breathtakingly beautiful she was. Little did he know that in less than 48 hours, Marilyn would be found dead. On the following evening of August 4th, Marilyn received a call from her former stepson, Joe DiMaggio Jr. He phoned her around 8.30 p.m. to tell her that he had broken off his engagement to the daughter of a wealthy San Diego contractor, and they chatted. He would later tell the LA Times in an interview that she didn't sound sad or upset, but normal, like Marilyn. However, just after midnight on August 5th, 1962, her housekeeper noticed Marilyn's bedroom light on. She called out to the actress, but received no answer. She tried the bedroom door, but it was locked. Alarmed, she immediately called Marilyn's psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson, who arrived after midnight, but the exact time he was alerted would later be called into question. The doctor stated he broke the window and climbed inside to find her lifeless body, with one hand clutching a phone and pills scattered across the bedroom floor. Marilyn was dead. Oddly, the doctor didn't call the police until 4.25 a.m. He claimed they needed permission from the publicity department of 20th Century Fox, which was producing Monroe's current film, before involving the law. The evidence the police found raised even more questions. For one, no water glass was initially found in her room, which Marilyn would have needed to swallow the large amount of pills necessary to overdose. Also, there was no pill residue in her stomach, and there was a strong suspicion she might have been injected with the deadly cocktail, even though the coroner would later claim she died of an apparent suicide. What's even stranger was the lack of testing on Marilyn's body. The coroner reportedly took samples from her stomach and small intestines and asked the toxologist to perform tests on them that would have determined exactly how the drugs entered her system. But the tests were never done and later destroyed. Who are the police trying to protect and why? When I take a deeper look at Marilyn's personal life, I find a sad but sweet soul born with the life path number seven. 
It's the number vibration for spiritual testing, and it can cause a person the greatest degree of potential turmoil, heartache, betrayal, and suffering in life. In recent decades, there have been a number of conspiracy theories about Marilyn's suspicious death and compelling evidence she may have been murdered. One deadly theory claims that the Kennedys killed Marilyn or had her killed because they feared she would reveal government secrets she may have overheard or expose the fact that she had been lovers to both brothers. What's even more interesting, 20 years after Marilyn's death, her housekeeper, Eunice Murray, in a 1983 BBC interview with biographer Anthony Summers, would reveal who had visited Marilyn the night she died. Summers states there was a moment in the interview where Eunice placed her head in her hands and said, Oh, why do I have to keep covering this up? He immediately asked her what she was covering up, and she stated the fact Bobby Kennedy was there the night Marilyn had died. Even more chilling, in 2007, Australian filmmaker Philippe Mora also discovered a partially redacted FBI document that suggests Robert Kennedy had an affair with Marilyn and may have been complicit in a plot to induce her suicide. The FBI file alludes that the deadly plot was carried out to silence Marilyn, who had threatened to reveal her affairs with the Kennedy brothers. Monroe was also thought to be a liability, allegedly keeping records of conversations detailing highly confidential government information in a little black book. Another interesting theory comes from the independent newspaper in the UK and the allegation that Bernard Spindle bugged Marilyn's home on the orders of Jimmy Hoffa or Chicago Mafia boss Sam Giacana. Despite reported signings of Robert Kennedy in LA and entering Marilyn's home, the Attorney General stated he was in San Francisco on the night of her tragic death. However, Bernard Spindle claims to have heard Bobby and Marilyn fighting that night with Peter Lawford present, followed by a loud bang, thought to be the moment of her death. The recordings were reportedly seized and destroyed in 1966. The conspiracy tales continued to get even more twisted. Another story is Mafia boss Sam Giacana wanted Marilyn dead, according to biographer Darwin Porter author of Marilyn at Rainbow's End, Sex, Lies, Murder, and the Great Cover-Up, as she was threatening to blow the lid off his operations. The Don is said to have had Marilyn over a barrel because he had been instrumental in helping her secure her first Hollywood contract in return for the seduction of powerful men that the mobster wanted to blackmail. The author believes five mafia hitmen were responsible for Marilyn's murder on the order of Sam Giacana, using a washcloth drenched in chloroform, then stripping her and giving her a barbiturate enema. One final observation comes from one of her close friends and former lover, Marlon Brando, who was a master at studying people. As an actor, it was his work, and it was his innate ability to mimic others, coupled with his imagination and empathy, that made him give such powerful performances. The actor would later state in an interview after Marilyn's death that he believed she didn't commit suicide, but was murdered. Brando believed that he could read people at an incredibly high level and that no matter how smart a person was, they could not completely conceal depression. So in his eyes, Marilyn couldn't have committed suicide because he would have felt pending danger prior to her tragic death. Authorities at Marilyn Monroe's home 
didn't know who to call when she passed away, so they reached out to her former husband, Joe DiMaggio. Devastated by the loss of his one true love, he immediately flew to Los Angeles to claim her body and make arrangements for her to be buried at Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery, where Hollywood's elite was laid to rest. He called Marilyn's elder half-sister, Bernice Miracle, along with business manager Inez Melson to assist. Under Joe DiMaggio's direct instructions, none of her Hollywood friends were invited because he held them responsible, morally if not actually, for her death. The private service took place at 1 p.m. on August 8, 1962. Marilyn's body lay in an open bronze casket lined with champagne-colored satin. She was dressed in her green Pucci dress and chiffon scarf, a favorite, which she had worn at a press conference in Mexico City earlier that year. One of her favorite songs, Over the Rainbow, played quietly in the background as Lee Strasberg delivered the following eulogy. Marilyn Monroe was a legend. In her own lifetime, she created a myth of what a poor girl from a deprived background could attain. For the entire world, she became a symbol of the eternal feminine. But I have no words to describe the myth and the legend, nor would she want us to do so. I did not know this Marilyn Monroe, nor did she. We gather here today, knew only Marilyn, a warm human being, impulsive and shy and lonely, sensitive and in fear of rejection, yet ever avid for life and reaching out for fulfillment. I will not insult the privacy of your memory of her, a privacy she sought and treasured by trying to describe her whom you know to you who knew her. In our memories of her, she remains alive, not only a shadow on the screen or a glamorous personality. For us, Marilyn was a devoted and loyal friend colleague constantly reaching for perfection. We shared our pain and difficulties and some of our joys. She was a member of our family. It is difficult to accept the fact that her zest for life has been ended by this dreadful accident. Despite the heights and brilliance she had attained on the screen, she was planning for the future. She was looking forward to participating in the many exciting things which she planned. In her eyes and in mine, her career was just beginning. The dream of her talent which she had nurtured as a child was not a mirage. When she first came to me, I was amazed at the startling sensitivity which she possessed and which had remained fresh and undimmed, struggling to express itself despite the life to which she had been subjected. Others were as physically beautiful as she was, but there was obviously something more in her, something that people saw and recognized in her performances and with which they identified. She had a luminous quality, a combination of wistfulness, radiance, yearning, that set her apart and yet made everyone wish to be part of it. 
the fair and the childish naive tale, which was at once so shy and yet so vibrant. This quality was even more evident when she was on the stage. I am truly sorry that you and the public who loved her did not have the opportunity to see her as we did in many of the roles that foreshadowed what she would have become. Without a doubt, she would have been one of the really great actresses of the stage. Now it is all at an end. I hope that her death will stir sympathy and understanding for a sensitive artist and woman who brought joy and pleasure to the world. I cannot say goodbye. Marilyn never liked goodbye. And the peculiar way she had of turning things around so that they faced reality, I will say au revoir. For the country to which she has gone, we must all someday visit. Only 31 mourners were invited to attend, but it was reported that a crowd of 500 gathered outside the cemetery gates to pay their respects to their beloved Marilyn Monroe, while over 100 policemen, reinforced by studio security officers, to maintain order. Her ex-husband, Joe DiMaggio, wept uncontrollably, leaning over Marilyn's casket, kissing her on the lips one last time and whispered, I love you, I love you. Over 50 years later, what really happened to Marilyn during her final hours remains a mystery. Was it an accidental overdose, suicide, or a deadly murder? Had Marilyn been driven by despair by one of her many failed relationships? Or did her famous little black book, documenting all her torrid affairs, push someone to kill her? In a biography published in 2017, Dinner with DiMaggio, Memories of an American Hero, it states Joe DiMaggio always knew who killed Marilyn, and she had privately told him she believed someone would do her in. According to the book, he believed in the end the Kennedys got away with murder. Perhaps sensing the end was near, Marilyn created her last will and testament in 1961, just 10 days before her Mexican divorce from Arthur Miller was finalized. After Marilyn's death, her will was filed for probate in New York surrogate court on August 7, 1962. It was almost immediately contested by one of her business managers, Inez Melson. But it was eventually established as her valid last will and testament, and it was finally admitted to probate in October 1962. The will included provisions for her half-sister, Bernice Miracle, her secretary, Mae Reese, and $100,000 was placed in a trust to go towards the care of her mother, Gladys, who would later pass away in 1984. But the lion's share of Marilyn's estate would be left to her mentor and acting coach, Lee Strasberg. For the year after Marilyn's death, Inez Melson was appointed by the court to administer and take inventory of the estate. But when she was discharged, rather than turning everything over to the estate, Melson kept several items. 
even though all her personal effects and clothing were to be inherited by acting coach Lee Strasberg. Later, the Strasberg estate would sue the Melson family to stop their plans to sell Marilyn's memorabilia, claiming they were illegally owned. The courts agreed, ordering the family to turn over whatever Marilyn Monroe property the family testified to owning. After Lee Strasberg's death in 1982, the ownership of Marilyn Monroe's image went to his surviving spouse, Anna, who reportedly made a fortune off that inheritance, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to $30 million. She used the windfall to strike various licensing deals for publicity rights and products bearing her image. Today, according to the Guide to United States Pop Culture, as an icon of American popular culture, Marilyn has few rivals in popularity, including Elvis Presley and Mickey Mouse. No other star has ever inspired such a wide range of emotions, from lust to pity and from envy to remorse. In one of Marilyn Monroe's famous quotes, she said, In Hollywood, a girl's virtue is much less important than her hairdo. You're judged by how you look, not by what you are. Hollywood's the place where they'll pay you a thousand dollars for a kiss and fifty cents for your soul. I know, because I turned down the first offer often enough and held out for the fifty cents. Prior to her death, Marilyn had rekindled her love affair with ex-husband Joe DiMaggio, and according to close friend Morris Engelberg, the two were set to be remarried on August the 8th, 1962, but tragically she died just three days before they were set to wed. After her death, Joe arranged for roses to be placed at her grave every week for more than 20 years. After she died, he never spoke of Marilyn again in public for the rest of his life, but his dying words showed his enduring passion for the blonde beauty. As he faced death, Joe DiMaggio's last thoughts were of the woman whom he carried a lifelong torch, his lovely ex-wife, the former baseball player told friends he would be reunited with her in the afterlife, and his last dying words were, I'll finally get to see Marilyn. The luminous quality Marilyn Monroe had on screen was a light so bright to the world that even after her death, her light lives on. Death by Misadventure was produced by Cosmic Media and written by me, JC Nova. Our supernatural team of co-hosts includes the talented Eduardo Fahey in London, Tom Dre, our master numerologist and paranormal investigator in L.A., Paul Robinson, magi and musician in Marin, and myself, I'm a psychic astrologer and paranormal investigator in Los Angeles and San Francisco. This episode was recorded at Robin Sound Studios in Marin, California, and also at Union Recording Studio in West Hollywood, California. Kudos to sound engineers Paul Robinson and Noah Shanklin. A special thanks to audio producer Christopher Lang in Tucson, who brings each episode to life, and Paulina from Upper Planet in London. She's responsible for the super cool design of our official website. 
She's also the designer for one of our favorite true crime podcasts, Case File. Please like and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash death by misadventure podcast. Each episode is available for download direct via our website at deathbymisadventure.co.uk and also at iTunes, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Last but not least, our podcast is hosted by Libsyn. I'm JC Nova, and this has been Death by Misadventure. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.